Well, we continue our walk through Romans, though we're in chapter 3 still. And, uh, we are really turning the chapter in just terms of the tone and the theme of the book. But this morning we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31 in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these words. As we just sang ancient words, we pray, God, that you would do a work here that only you could do, causing these words to Bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. God, may your spirit be present in our midst, in the preaching and in the hearing and in the practicing of your word. Give us hearts receptive to your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What brings you joy? What are those things in life that you especially delight in and rejoice over? It's probably different for all of us. Perhaps when payday hits, or maybe when you're noticed at school, or when your kids are obedient to you. That has to bring some satisfaction. I know it does to us when Soren does what we ask. Or maybe it's your grandchildren or a hobby. Lately, I've been finding joy on my skateboard, uh, especially if I'm skating and I'm trying a new trick, you know, I'm trying it for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, for 30 minutes, and then I finally land one. That, for me, is a source of great joy. Or when Soren wants to give his dad a hug. Parents, you could probably relate. Well, these things are all good. They're all joy-inducing, but they're only good up to a degree, right? They're not an ultimate good or a highest good. It's possible payday doesn't come. No one notices you at school. Your kids are disobedient. It's possible that instead of landing that trick, I sprain my ankle. And it's possible that Soren gets older and he kind of gets tired of giving dad 
a hug. So we can ask, what is it then that we can rejoice over that is enduring, that doesn't ebb and flow with the passage of time? I submit to you this morning that the gospel of God's free grace is a dependable source of joy, of lasting joy, of spiritual joy, of joy that is there even when the chips are down. The gospel is our joy, and that's going to be kind of the theme that we're going to revolve around as we look at this text this morning. So three points for us, uh, the first of which is that we should rejoice because the gospel tells me I can be saved. There are going to be three, at least three things we rejoice over through this text. The first is that we, we should rejoice because the gospel tells me that I can be saved. As I mentioned, we're entering into an altogether new stage in Paul's letter, one enthusiastically marked by Christ's saving kindness. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Whereas he labored earlier to get our attention to show us that we cannot even make one step toward heaven by the law, that we are lost in and of ourselves, he now introduces something radically new, a new principle apart from the law, a new comfort and a new hope, one derived apart from our own faithfulness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is what the Apostle Paul begins to hold out to us with both of his hands. And this righteousness, as we read, breaks into space-time history with the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And it altogether refocuses us. It refocuses us from our own piety, from our own righteousness, from our own rituals, from our own promises to do better, our own standards, and it instead turns us outward towards the righteousness of God found in Christ alone. Now notice what he says. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He uses the word law here twice, and both uses have different meanings. And the capitalization and, and the uh, second use of the word law gives us a hint as to what he might be getting at. The first use of the law is kind of what we've been talking about since we've been talking about Romans. It has to do with the moral law of God. And we can connect with this, uh, the idea of works, with this notion of law. But the second use of the word law here, where he says the law and the prophets, is really shorthand for the entire writings of the Old Testament. In other words, this is what he's saying. This salvation that we all need, the salvation which is now broken into our world, is enjoyed apart from law-keeping, but... Nevertheless, this is what Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the prophets foretold in former times. We saw this last week. You know, Paul has the tendency to ground his teachings in the Old Testament, showing in effect that his teachings aren't strange or contradictory to God's revelation elsewhere. Though it may sound new, it's been there all along. I'm not going to dwell on that. We're going to get into that again in chapter 4. 
Lord willing, beginning next week, where he brings up David and Abraham to sort of fortify his teaching. But where does the occasion for joy enter into this picture? Well, in exactly this, that the most important relationship possible, the most important connection possible for humanity is available to you. You are included. Well, Pastor Mike, how do we know that we are included? This was written a long time ago. A lot of things have come to pass since then. Well, I think there are three marks in this text that uh, lead us to believe that this righteousness of God is also for us. First, let's look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These are the same ones who uh, can be justified in the next verse. Okay, well, I don't think I have to, we've been talking about that, right? We got that covered, check. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So first thing, check. Next, contrary to what Paul's detractors have been trying to argue, God is not the God of Jews only, but he is also the God of the Gentiles. Or, so, in other words, are you a Gentile or a non-Jew, we could say? Well, if so, then, okay, great, that's check number two. Then what's that final thing that Paul sets out in this passage that would lead us to believe that we too can be saved. Remember, we've talked about this. It's not, it has nothing to do with ethnic identity, right? It's not salvation by race, and it has nothing to do with law keeping. It's not salvation by works. Well, what is it? What is it that vitally connects us to God? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's faith, simple trust and reliance on the promises of God. Are you a sinner? Are you a human being? Do you exercise trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for you? Then rejoice because God's plan of salvation is for you. You are not left out in the cold. You don't have to be cast out into the outer darkness on the last day, but instead you can enjoy the kindness of Christ both in this age and in the age to come. So be encouraged this morning. The way of life is open to you, not just to your neighbor, not just to the person sitting beside you or in front of you or behind you, but it is open to you as well. Now next, we should rejoice because the gospel tells me who I am. The gospel tells me who I am, so I should rejoice. So we should rejoice. Now, admittedly, the center of this passage in chapter 3 is pretty dense, full of rich theological language like redemption, justification, propitiation, right? Who, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody walking down the road or you know, watching the news and somebody mentions the word propitiation, right? It just doesn't happen. Um, so, a dense passage, but richly significant and important. Luther said of it, Take heed to what is here in Romans 3. It is the central and most important passage of the epistle and indeed the entire scripture. High praise. 
Then Calvin would later say, there is probably no passage in the whole Bible of greater significance as regards the justifying righteousness of God. And what's finally happening here is Paul is giving us this multifaceted image and picture of what salvation in Jesus looks like. And these different terms are kind of like the different facets on a diamond, where the facets, while geometrically different from the other facets, all belong to the same diamond. Redemption is not the same thing as propitiation. Propitiation is not the same thing as justification. But all of these things belong to the unitary, single work of Jesus for us. So what does all of this mean, and what does it mean for us? Brief parenthetical note, he mentions justification a lot. I'm not going to go over that right now because chapter 4 is all about justification. So we're going to spend some time looking at these other terms that don't come up elsewhere in the book of Romans. Well, at least uh, not as frequently. So the most general, but also the most foundational term can be found in verse 24, grace. We see it in that phrase, being justified by his grace as a gift. And as Christians, we know that we use this term a lot. And grace basically can be defined as God's undeserved favor and kindness. God's undeserved favor and kindness. Sometimes we talk about God's common grace, where he indiscriminately pours out life-sustaining and even life-enriching blessings upon humanity, redeemed humanity and unredeemed humanity. Things like rain and, and sunshine and human government, you know, maybe a good education, you know, beautiful grandkids, beautiful kids, great parents, things like that. That's not what we're talking about this morning. That's not what Paul's talking about. What's meant here is God's special grace, his saving grace, his goodness towards undeserving humanity, whereby he reaches down to us and renews us and reconciles us to himself, though we ourselves are undeserving. You know, whereas we would natively deserve wrath, God in his grace gives us the opposite. He gives us the gift of his son. And grace, mentioned specifically at this point of the letter, should, I believe, arrest our attention. And to, to get to answer why it should, all we have to do is think back to the picture that Paul has been painting of humanity up to this point. Right? Humanity, as we've seen, naturally rebels against God, suppresses his truth, perverts the natural order of things, takes advantage of his patience, and parades itself as righteous with great, great pride. But look how God responds. He responds with grace, grace upon grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Simply put, grace is God's yes to us. Whereas before in our natural condition, this big black capital no over our lives, but grace is God's yes to us. And notice how it's emphasized here. Justified by his grace as a gift, as if it weren't enough to say that we're justified by grace. He mentions that we're justified by grace as a gift. So we see it's not salvation by works. It's not salvation um, by grace plus our faithfulness. It's salvation by grace alone 
in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And this is key for us to remember when we're reminded how we don't measure up. It's good for us to be reminded that God is there in grace, that he is there for us when we fall, that he will pick us up when we fall, even when we fall on our face. He's there to brush us off and to cleanse us, and he's there to lead us forward in the right way. You are not defined by your mistakes you are a child of God. Grace, not guilt, should be the song of our hearts. Grace, not guilt, should be the song of our hearts. But though God's grace is free to us, it was not free to the Lord Jesus. The grace we receive, notice, is, quote, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And redemption has to do with the payment of a price. Just as in the ancient world, someone could pay a price to ransom captured soldiers or to purchase a slave from the market, so too Christ pays the ultimate price to free us from God's judgment, to free us from enslavement to sin, and even to free us from the snare of the devil. In Galatians 3.10 we hear Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Later, Titus 2.14 speaks of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, we have been set free by the blood of Christ. We have been purchased by Christ. So fight against the temptation to see yourself as being dominated or defeated by sin or as under its thumb. Walk in the truth instead that you are now free to live to God. Not that we don't have hang-ups and, and stumblings along the way, but fundamentally we have been freed to live to God. And let us all take to heart these words from the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So let's use our, our hands, our feet, our mouths, our tongues, not to sin, but rather to honor the Lord with. And finally, the last term we're going to look over this morning, propitiation. Propitiation, right? Lots of syllables. Jesus is the one, according to verse 20, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what is the big picture here? Propitiation has to do with the satisfaction of wrath. Because we have sinned, as we've seen, we are liable to God's everlasting punishment. However, Jesus, through his death on the cross, appeases that wrath. He extinguishes it at the cost of his own life. He propitiates God, removing any and every impediment that stood in the way between us and God, that stood in the way of us having a relationship with him. Jesus' work for us, you could say, is a justice-satisfying, hell-removing kind of work. And as a result, I think you can be encouraged in your Christian life 
that God is not angry with you. I think sometimes we're tempted to go through life thinking, you know, that we've, we've messed up and that God is just perpetually in a state of anger over our flimsy obedience. That's not what propitiation has to say about the matter. God's justice has been 100% satisfied. Now, we can still uh, incur God's fatherly displeasure, but that's worlds apart from God's everlasting wrath. And it would be a lie of the enemy, of course, to conclude from this that we have a license to sin. Let's not think in those terms. Paul just got done dealing with that in the first eight verses of chapter 3, and we'll get to it again in chapter 6. But we should rejoice in the fact that we have passed out of death into life, that no matter you know, what other things may come our way in this life, loss, hardship, disease, you know, whatever, whatever may come our way, we, our lives are still secure in God. The Apostle John said it best, I think, in the first letter in his epistle, the first, uh, first few verses in chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So if you are a Christian here this morning and you are still asking questions about who you are, you know, what it means to be a Christian, you know, who are you in this world? My encouragement is to let this passage begin to fill in that picture for you, that you are a grace-receiving, blood-bought child of God and his approving smile rests on you. And this is good news especially relative to all of the bad news that we've been hearing up to this point. This is good news. Now, finally, okay, so we've, we've seen that we should rejoice because the gospel tells me that we can be saved. We should rejoice because the gospel tells me who I am. Now, finally, we should rejoice because the gospel tells me who God is. The gospel that's being laid out before us, the same gospel that the apostles be, is going to begin to unpack in the next few chapters in Romans, tells us a whole lot about the God that we serve. Even if you just sort of slowly read the passage that we read, these, some things explicitly come out. His glory, his righteousness, his grace, his forbearance, and his justice. Now, in the previous weeks, we've, uh, we've had the opportunity to look at God's righteousness in some detail. And this morning, we've looked at God's grace even a little bit. Uh, but before we close, we want to spend a moment and look at God's forbearance. We have this peculiar, not everything in Scripture is, is super clear and, and easy to understand. So it's okay. You know, Paul or the Apostle Peter even said there are some things in him you know, in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. We have here this sort of peculiar passage um, that we're going to look at. Right. For context, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over former sins. So what 
is going on here. Well, he's getting at the question of how a righteous and holy God could forgive the sins of those who believed prior to the arrival of Jesus Christ. Because as we know, the Lord Jesus Christ did not actually pay for sins in the season and times of Adam and Eve and, and Solomon and David and Hannah, but it was much later. But what happened here in Romans and in redemptive history is that God passed over these sins of former times. He exercised, you could say, a long patience because all of those sins would eventually be paid in the cross work of Jesus. Now, he still applies the benefits of Christ's death to believing Old Testament saints, but the sins weren't actually taken care of until Jesus went to the cross. This is a demonstration of infinite and profound patience on God's part. And this is so like our God to exercise forbearance. Think about it. God could have justly wiped the earth out Adam, after Adam and Eve sinned, giving them exactly what they deserved. Remember, death. But he didn't immediately pay that sin back in full, did he? He was patient. God could immediately take out all of those who today shake their fists at him. But what does he do? Instead, he patiently extends his invitation to come to his son for reconciliation. 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And God's divine forbearance, I believe, has a threefold practical use for us. First, as those created to, as those really created and redeemed to imitate God, let us with all patience and long-suffering bear long with those who offend us, even those who irritate us. To be godly in this life is to forgive those who offend us and to even overlook transgressions committed against us. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. But secondly, we should find great encouragement that God is patient towards each and every one of us. He's patient with us as a church, new hope, but he's also patient with each of us individually. Remember that when you're tempted to think that God is sort of just about to write you off, you know, that you've sinned one too many times and you've bought yourself a ticket out of the kingdom of God. No, God is not finished with you yet. His patience is infinite. It's eternal. He will remain by your side. He is a God who is patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, and ready to forgive. And finally, God's patience toward us is cause for worship and celebration. What an awesome God that we serve. And wouldn't you agree that this God who is patient with us in our stumblings, who's patient with all of humanity, even is worthy of our service and our worship. May these thoughts, you know, may this truth concerning God's patience towards us, may that impact us when we are in prayer. May it impact us when we are 
you know, our patience is being tried, you know, that we serve a God who is infinitely patient toward you and toward me. Thanks be to God for his patience and thanks be to God for the gospel of his son, which, you know, thankfully we will be spending the next few weeks on quite a, quite a bit of time. Chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, some of chapter seven, in chapter 8 especially, highlight and exalt God's grace towards us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us reason to rejoice. God, this world around us and sometimes our own hearts give us cause to, to be down to be melancholy, to maybe even be depressed or anxious. God, but your word, your good news gives to us a reason to rejoice. And this cause for rejoicing will never leave us nor abandon us. Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would help each and every one of us to avail ourselves of this good news. Not just you know, once and for all, you know, as we came to faith in your son, but it may be even each and every day. God, for this encouragement is life itself and is, is meant to be for us uh, in this life. It is a good thing, Father, that you have given to us and we give you thanks for it. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.